Howdy everyone, I'm Isaac Hill, Lord of the Lemurians, Master Manifester, and your extremely humble host. If you haven't already, I'd suggest you listen to the intro episode, get a sense of what this show is about. But today, we're jumping right in. We got a solo show about America's own neo-gnostic New Age gospel, A Course in Miracles. So grab your quartz crystals, pour yourself a glass of ice-cold alkaline water, and if you have time, maybe think about sending a little miracle my way. The miracle of a five-star review. Leave a review, you're going to be helping the angelic forces overthrow the archons of Shaitan and his innumerable army of unspeakably evil jinn. Just a thought. Anyways, once again, my name, Isaac Hill. This is Mystical America. Welcome. Regarding the voice you heard inscribing A Course in Miracles, does it come from outside or from within? There's nothing that I would call ordinary audition about this at all. It doesn't really... It's a curious thing, and it will be very difficult to explain. Somebody asked me, was it as though your hand was moving? No, I wrote perfectly voluntarily in response to... I call it a voice, but a voice has sounds or sounds as though it has something to do with hearing. I didn't hear anything. I think it's a sort of hearing that you can't really describe. It doesn't have anything to do with ears or waves hitting a drum or anything on that order. I don't really know. I think maybe I'm using the wrong word when I say hear. I sort of recognized it. It was very rapid. I could even, if I didn't catch a phrase, I could sort of say, would you mind doing that again, you know? This was in your mind? This is strictly mental. Otherwise, I would consider it hallucinatory activity. I don't feel it was. Somewhere on the outskirts of Sedona, Arizona, a.k.a. the mecca of New Age capitalism and indigo child culture, if you can call it culture, I met a man who went by the name of Swami Joyful Heart. I'll do my best to paint a picture of this guy. He had long gray hair and a beard, looked like a wizard or orthodox priest. He wore a full Franciscan habit, like a medieval monk, a large cowboy hat and aviator sunglasses, and he walked totally barefoot wherever possible, his feet scarred by time and so thoroughly covered in a layer of dirt, grime, and sand that they'd scare the ever-living shit out of a suburban mom. He was homeless or unhoused or whatever the fuck term you prefer, though his homelessness seemed to be primarily by choice, a conscious decision to reject the excesses of the world, like the sannyasis of India or the desert fathers of early Christianity. He carried a begging bowl, to which he had taped a sign reading, quote, No tarot, no psychic readings, no crystals, just a monk in prayer. But you see, Swami Joyful Heart was no ordinary monk, Christian, Buddhist, or otherwise. Swami was a devotee of a strange text called A Course in Miracles. One afternoon in 1965, a psychologist and professor by the name of Helen Shuckman heard a voice. That voice simply said, this is A Course in Miracles. Please take notes. 
She immediately phoned her coworker and close friend in the Columbia University psychology department, Bill Thetford. This was the start of a strange pairing, as two respected psychologists began the process of transcribing Helen's channeled messages. It is said that for most of her adult life, Helen was a devout atheist. Therefore, it's strange to think that the voice Helen began to channel that day would claim to be none other than Jesus himself. This non-dual, heretical, potentially, and mystical version of Jesus, which Helen channeled, was at no loss for words, as the book is massive. I believe you could probably call it a tome. And if you'd like to read the book, if you're curious about it, you can find it online. I believe it's just acim.org, and it's totally free to read. But I'm going to warn you that, honestly, as interesting as I find this book, it's also fucking boring, and it's very long. So do with that what you will. The book itself, it's split into about four sections. You have your preface, introduction, then you have your text, then workbook for students, and a manual for teachers. We're gonna be focused mostly on the text and the workbook for students. I find that the workbook for students is particularly interesting because it's a 365 day set of exercises that are designed to supposedly bring you closer to a non-dual realization of God or the divinity that is within each and every one of us. Let's get into the theology of the course. To do this, we're gonna ask three simple questions. How does a course in miracles view the world? How does a course in miracles view God? And finally, how does a course in miracles view Jesus? The answer to these questions, I'm going to be sourcing from a website called Miracle Studies. That's miraclestudies.net. Uh, this is a great site for learning about the course and simplifying it quite a bit. It's also a great site because it's still in that uh, early web design, 90s, 2000s web design format that I find to be so beautiful, especially when you're looking at new agey and spiritual sites. It makes me nostalgic for an era that I just barely experienced. So how does A Course in Miracles view the world? Well, Miracle Studies provides a pretty good answer here, though they phrase it differently. The question is, what is the nature of life? So, quote, In A Course in Miracles, life as created by God has nothing to do with what we call or know as life in the body. Life is spirit, non-material, non-dualistic, and eternal. Perhaps the clearest statement in the course on the essence of life, what it is and what it is not, comes in this very powerful passage from the Laws of Chaos in chapter 23 of the text. It begins with a telling and gentle mockery of our worship of the body. Can you paint rosy lips upon a skeleton, dress it in loveliness, pet it and pamper it and make it live? And can you be content with an illusion that you are living? There's no life outside of heaven. Where God created life, there life must be. In any state apart from heaven, life is illusion. At best, it seems like life. At worst, like death. Yet both are judgments on what is not life, equal in their inaccuracy and lack of meaning. 
life not in heaven is impossible, and what is not heaven and what is not in heaven is not anywhere. Outside of heaven, only the conflict of illusion stands, senseless, impossible, and beyond all reason, and yet perceived as an eternal barrier to heaven. Illusions are but forms, their content is never true. Very carefully, therefore, Jesus is explaining that life is oneness with our source in heaven, where the mind of Christ and the mind of God are one. Life, spirit, and mind are basically synonymous with each other, sharing the characteristics of formlessness, changelessness, and eternal life. What we in the world have identified as life in the body, such as brainwaves and heartbeats, is clearly not what the Course calls life. Indeed, one workbook lesson, Lesson 167, is entitled, quote, There is one life, and that I share with God. Therefore, what we experience as life, as a physical and psychological organism, is a travesty or parody of our truth self, the Christ that God created as true life. It is important to understand how life is seen in A Course in Miracles, otherwise students will end up confusing themselves both in understanding the Course's non-dualistic teachings as well as applying them to their personal lives. Okay, on to the second theology question here, which is, how does the Course view God? And Miracle Studies also has a pretty good answer to that, the first question on their Frequently Asked Questions page which is, what is the nature of God? Quote, To begin with, it is imperative to recognize that the true living God spoken of in A Course in Miracles is a non-dualistic being in whom absolutely no opposites reside. The Holy One is the creator of all life, a being of pure love and the source and first cause of non-physical reality and totality, the perfect one who is all-encompassing, outside of whom is literally nothing, for he is everything. Our source's nature cannot be described or really understood at all, as Jesus comments in the workbook. Oneness is simply the idea God is, and in his being, he encompasses all things. No mind holds anything but him. We say, quote, God is, and then we cease to speak. For in that knowledge, words are meaningless. There are no lips to speak them, and no part of the mind sufficiently distinct to feel that it is now aware of something not itself. It has united with its source, and like its source itself, it merely is. We cannot speak, nor write, nor even think of this at all. Jesus states that the nature of God and his oneness cannot be written about because it is a pure non-dualistic reality, and the spoken and written word which expresses the thinking of a split mind is dualistic. Therefore, any attempts to describe non-dualism must fail and inevitably fall short of expressing the reality of oneness that lies beyond all expression. Again, it simply is. At best, therefore, all we can do is describe God's nature, always keeping in mind that our words are but symbols of symbols and are thus twice removed from reality. Okay, so the final introductory question we have regarding uh, the Course's theology is how does the Course view Jesus? Now, this question from Miracle Studies is not the exact same question, but it gives a good sense of who the quote-unquote author of the Course is. 
So the question is, is the Jesus of A Course in Miracles the same Jesus written about in the Bible and the same person who walked the earth in Palestine 2,000 years ago? Yes, it is definitely the same Jesus who appeared in the world 2,000 years ago with the same message of truth in content, obviously, not form. However, it is extremely hard to believe that the Jesus of A Course in Miracles is the same figure written about in the Bible, just as it would be difficult to accept that the biblical Jesus resembles the truly historical one. This is not the place to delve into issues of scripture scholarship and how the Gospels were written, but suffice it to state for our purposes here that the figure found in the four Gospels, as well as the teachings recorded in the other books of the New Testament, are often diametrically opposed to what we find in the Course. Rather than attempt a Procrustean fit of a round peg into a square hole, it seems much safer and more intellectually honest for students of A Course in Miracles to accept that the biblical Jesus represents the collective projections of the various authors of the Gospels and Epistles, while the voice and person of Jesus in A Course in Miracles represents the ego-free being who lived and taught 2,000 years ago. In conclusion, the Jesus of the Bible and the Course are mutually exclusive figures, with only the common name linking them together. One of the main differences between the Jesus of A Course in Miracles and the Jesus of mainstream Christianity is the way the crucifixion is viewed. The crucifixion is viewed in mainstream Christianity as very much real, the suffering and persecution are seen as real, and the crucifixion is a form of perfect sacrifice to atone humanity from its sins. But this doesn't really work in the A Course in Miracles worldview. Christ says instead that the crucifixion was ultimately an illusion. He was never crucified or persecuted to begin with because there is no persecution and there also is no death. There is only resurrection. And also the Course asserts that there is no sin. There is only forgiveness. It is our flawed perception, according to the Course, and our insistence that there is sin and there is separation and that there are things that need to be forgiven which continually perpetuate the situation we are stuck in right now. Summarizing all this, A Course in Miracles proposes a non-dualistic version of Christianity which is deeply heretical to mainstream Christianity. The Course teaches that God alone exists and that it is our errors in perception which create the seemingly flawed and degenerate world in which we now appear to exist. Emphasis on appear. In the Course, Jesus is seen as a messenger for the divine, sent to remedy the situations we humans find ourselves in, thereby bringing us back to God. Of course, if God is one and God alone exists, this brings us to the question, how did we end up in this situation in the first place? How did we end up with so much separateness and strife? 
The Course ultimately chooses to answer this question paradoxically. The Course says that in asking this question, we only affirm the idea that separateness exists to begin with. Therefore, the question is ultimately irrelevant, and we can phrase this another way. For most of us, there are only questions, no answers. But for one who sees beyond duality and into the true nature of God, there are no questions, only the answer. What makes this book worthwhile when we're talking about uh, New Age texts and new religious movements that come out of the 1960s, 1970s, Age of Aquarius time is that it sort of stands on its own as being in a very different category than a lot of the books and movements that came out of this time. Most of the things that we saw happening in the 1960s, 1970s were extensions of theosophy. And that's something really important to note is that so much of the New Age and so much of American spiritual culture, whether you like it or not, is rehashed theosophy. But we'll get into that another time. Or it was quote-unquote Eastern philosophy brought over here, whether that was Ram Dass, Alan Watts, or any other number of gurus that came over here during that time. And well, A Course in Miracles was certainly unique for its time and radical for its time with its non-dual heretical take on Christianity, its ideas are actually extremely ancient. I'd like to quote Ecclesiastes 1.9 which says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And it's true. Uh, there, really, there really is nothing new under the sun. And A Course in Miracles is no exception to that rule. There is, of course, a much older, heretical, non-dual Christian tradition, which many of you might have heard of one which also saw the world as illusory and prioritized mystical dissolution into the divine. I'm talking about the Gnostics. For those who don't know, the Gnostics were a breakaway sect of Christianity, and they were pretty much wiped off the map after Catholicism and Orthodoxy became firmly established as the true carriers of the Christian tradition. The Gnostics were opposed to the material world. They believed that matter and the divine were incompatible with one another, and that true spirituality didn't consist of achieving harmony with this wretched world or the evil creator god of Genesis. Instead, true spirituality consisted of escaping the bonds and the chains of this earthly prison by awakening to the transcendent divinity that lies within each and every one of us, and which Christ had spoken of while he was on this earth. This inner awakening was called Gnosis. 
There's a whole cast of characters in the ancient Gnostic mythos, from the evil, false creator, and false god of this world known as the Demiurge, to the embodiment of wisdom and the divine feminine known as Sophia, or the bizarre serpent lion called Yadabath. But all that is a story for another time, because the course notably is missing all those Gnostic characters, but make no doubt it is a Gnostic text, albeit a reimagined one. One of the better papers I found regarding A Course in Miracles and its relationship to Gnosticism comes from a Simon J. Joseph in the Department of Religious Studies at California Lutheran University. He wrote a very excellent paper called Knowledge is Truth, A Course in Miracles as Neo-Gnostic Scripture. In this paper, Simon makes a very compelling case for why, in spite of its lack of traditional Gnostic characters, A Course in Miracles is what he calls a neo-Gnostic scripture. So as the world increasingly moves away from Christian orthodoxy and tradition, one finds what Simon calls Gnosticizing happening more frequently. This Gnosticizing is taking the Christian tradition and attempting to find hidden or mystical interpretations below the surface. There's this tendency for these New Age texts to revise and reanalyze the Christian mythos rather than rejecting Christianity outright. They're actually appealing to Jesus and to scripture to give their text validity. And you see this in the New Age's obsession with lost gospels, biblical numerology, and tales of Christ's journey to the East. All of that is ultimately a Gnostic impulse, but the Gnostic content of A Course in Miracles runs even deeper than that. Kenneth Wapnick was one of the most influential disciples of the Course, and one of the primary proponents of a Gnostic interpretation of its contents. One of Wapnick's main comparisons of Gnosticism and the Course is this convergence between the Course and the Valentinian School, which is a notable ancient Gnostic sect. To quote Simon Joseph in the paper I've been referring to here, Both the Course and the Valentinian Gnostic phenomenal world is illusory and was not created by God. Wapnick claims that God did not create the phenomenal universe, which was rather part of the ego's defensive war against God. As the Course itself puts it, the world was made as an attack on God. Wapnick claims that the Course teaches that God did not create the world and that God does not know about the separation. Quote, the goal then of the Course is to move from phenomenal perception or the sense-based perception that we experience now to true divine perception, gnosis, or as the Course calls this journey to true perception, the bridge to the real world. Then we have the case of the Course's channeled version of Jesus. Does this Jesus bear any resemblance to the Jesus of ancient Gnosticism? In the early days of the church, there was quite a bit of back and forth between Gnostics and the developing mainstream churches. One of the many heretical positions held by various Gnostic sects was the doctrine of Docetism. This was the idea that Christ did not have a real physical or natural body, rather his form was only apparently real, but ultimately illusory. The Course parrots those Docetic teachings as well. But it is far more radical, because while ancient Gnostics may have seen Jesus as a sort of spiritual phantom, the Course 
sees all individuals and phenomenal perceptions as ultimately illusory, Jesus included. Like the Gnostics of old, the Course also asserts a false creator god. But the primary difference is that this false god is not some separate malevolent entity, but rather a projection of the human ego. It is here that Helen Shuckman's background in psychology shows up in the text. The myths and concepts of psychology and psychotherapy are used to reinvent and reinvigorate traditional Gnostic concepts for the 21st century. One thing I'd like to point out, though, is that this isn't a unanimously agreed upon idea that the Course is inherently a Gnostic, neo-Gnostic text. In fact, there's quite a bit of debate around how to interpret the text, how to interpret its relationship to traditional Christian scriptures. And you see, much like the Bible itself, and Christianity itself, various uh, different schools of thought arising out of this text. And Kenneth Wapnick, who we just mentioned, is one of the primary interpreters of this text, and he's very fond of the Gnostic interpretation, but others are not so much. And I also think, while the Gnostic angle has been stressed quite a bit, and a lot of people have spoken about that. I also think it's worth talking about the text's connection to other non-dual traditions, like perhaps my favorite non-dual tradition, the OG, Advaita Vedanta. We're going to do a whole episode on Vedanta in America soon here, because there's a very rich history there, and I want to have a guest on for that as well. But regardless, just to give a quick overview of what Advaita Vedanta is, Vedanta is a term that comes out of the South Asian spiritual tradition, popularly known as Hinduism. Vedanta means end of the Vedas, the Vedas being Hinduism's primary sacred writings. The final texts of the Vedas are known as the Upanishads, and these are the metaphysical texts of the Vedas, and arguably some of the most important mystical writings of all time. These texts are incredibly old, and their tradition of philosophical interpretation is Vedanta. This tradition has led to quite a few Vedantic schools with differing interpretations of these texts, and they range from strict dualism to qualified monism to strict non-dualism. I want to focus on the strictly non-dualist school here, which is known as Advaita Vedanta. The primary assertion of Advaita is the saying, Thou art that, meaning you are divinity, or as it would be called in Hinduism, Atman. The path of Advaita is a path of knowledge. It is a path of deep self-contemplation, removing through a path of logic and meditation the concept of a separate, mortal, suffering self. Those who practice Advaita Vedanta see ignorance as the greatest obstacle and believe that if we could only peel back the veil and see our true nature, samsara, maya, and all our illusory perceptions would be destroyed when we come to see what we truly are. I've wondered for a while whether A Course in Miracles could be a uniquely American and Christianized form of Advaita Vedanta, or at least an attempt at it. 
I have to apologize to any traditional practitioners of Advaita because this comparison's probably a little insulting or silly. We're comparing one of the most philosophically rigorous schools of Hindu philosophy with a book that's beloved by Marianne Williamson. No shade. But nevertheless, the Course does its best to attempt a process of self-deconstruction and reconstruction, which I find to be at least somewhat similar to Advaita's. Both Advaita and the workbook of the Course aim to deconstruct the idea of a solid identity within the body, mind, or sense perception of an individual. After this deconstruction is completed, though, the practitioner is forced to confront the fact that they are the divinity they seek. I'm not going to argue that Advaita and A Course in Miracles are the same, just as I would not argue that Gnosticism and The Course are the same. But nevertheless, Advaita and The Course are both non-dual traditions. And I think they come from the same impulse, because wherever there's orthodoxy, ritual, and dualism, there is also heterodoxy, iconoclasm, and non-dual mysticism. For every churchgoer who is content to reach heaven after death, there is the mystic who demands to meet and know God now, and we see this in almost every religious tradition. For it is the mystic who realizes that this moment alone exists, and this moment alone is our chance to realize God. A Course in Miracles is proof that non-duality is an extremely simple idea regarding our oneness with the divine. But it's also so perplexing to the human mind, the idea of going beyond duality, that Jesus himself apparently needed a whole thousand page book to explain it. debating for the past half hour or so whether I should do this next segment, but I figured it's important. For the next and final segment of this podcast, we're going to get into the critiques of A Course in Miracles. We're going to get into critiques of the text itself, critiques of uh, Bill Thetford and Helen Chuckman, the author and scribe of Miracles, as well as critiques of the communities that have formed around this book. I want to reiterate something that I said in my intro podcast, though, which is that you should basically take anything I say about a religious community or a text with a grain of salt. I'm trying to give a reasonable and balanced take on these ideas, but at the same time, it's very difficult to do when you're dealing with the realm of the mystical, metaphysical, imaginal. These are topics that often aren't black or white, and a book that can be very helpful and inspiring to someone 
can also lead someone into nihilism and despair. So my recommendation to you simply is do your own research, um, use my research as a sounding board for it, and then go out and explore. And then finally, find what resonates with your heart. I know that sounds like some uh, generic hippy-dippy bullshit advice, but it's true. You aren't going to have much success in a spiritual practice if it doesn't resonate with your heart and soul on a deep level. And also look towards the people who practice um, these faiths and say, well, how do they act? How do they treat others? How do they, um, what, what is their presence in the world like? Is it positive or is it coercive and cult-like. But again, that's for you to determine. I'm not here to be a preacher or pastor or even an academic and tell you what to think. I am just a fucking guy at the end of the day. So take that how you will. Let's get into some of these critiques. We'll keep it short. And again, do your own research. Thanks. Let's start with the least controversial critique that can be made about A Course in Miracles. Over the years, groups have begun to form around the Course, each with their own set of interpretations and practices, and I'm certain that a great deal of these groups have been beneficial to their participants. But of course, religious groups often come with leaders and power structures. It is no surprise, then, that these leaders often abuse and misuse their power. And funnily enough, for most people who have ran around spiritual communities, myself included, we come to realize that often those who claim to have no ego have the largest, most calcified and manipulative egos. Those who claim to have only empathy and forgiveness at the root of their actions are often driven solely by greed, fear, anger, and trauma. The thing is, though, this occurs everywhere. As you'll continue to hear on this show, my background is in evangelical Christianity. I was homeschooled, I went to VBS, youth group, Awana, Sunday school, missions trips, and even briefly went to Bible school. Bible college. Every church, every temple, every mosque, if put in narcissistic hands, if power is left unchecked, has the potential to become a manipulative cult. It was many years after leaving the evangelical church behind that I would come to hear that the pastor of my childhood church was manipulating women he offered spiritual counseling to into having sex with him. These young women were often 18 to 21 years old. He was 65. It's another story, though. The point here is that the power of being a spiritual leader often attracts the wrong crowd, to say the least. Based on what I just said, then, it isn't exactly shocking that abusive and manipulative behavior would sometimes reportedly occur in course groups. And just a quick note slash disclaimer here that as far as I can tell, these groups are in no way officially associated with the book's publisher, Foundation for Inner Peace, or any sort of official Course in Miracles organization. However, it's worth asking whether the contents and the ideas contained in the course could make an individual more vulnerable to manipulation. And some people have argued this. 
There's a relatively popular Medium post by Matthew Remsky, who's involved with one of these Course in Miracles groups, headed up by a supposedly manipulative leader. The title of the article makes its agenda known in very clear terms, as it's called simply, Why a Course in Miracles is not good for you, or those you love. While Matthew seems to agree that the majority of fault falls on the abusive group leader, he also believes that the Course in Miracles text itself can help foster these environments. How? The start of A Course in Miracles opens with the words, this is A Course in Miracles. It is a required course. Already then, Matthew argues, it has cemented itself as a totalizing and final doctrine. Though I would have to say that Matthew might be ignoring the fact that many religious books throughout history are also totalizing doctrines and final dogmas. Matthew goes on to say that the Course and its notion of an illusory world lead people to ignore sicknesses such as cancer or mental illness, going so far as to avoid treatment altogether in favor of focusing on the Course and its lessons. One of the most notable points, though, is that Matthew believes the text's rhythm, which turns out to be mostly the classic poetic form iambic pentameter, contributes to the text's hypnotic nature. This rhythm makes the text into a sort of brainworm, nestling the voice of Jesus firmly inside the course worker's consciousness. Matthew also points out that the students he met often all had the same posture, gentle smiles and ways of speaking, as if their personalities had all converged with the book and its teachers, for better or for worse. Ultimately, most critiques of the book are that it promotes a sort of spiritual nihilism, a rejection of the world and its responsibilities. For many critics of A Course in Miracles, telling people that their suffering, their illnesses and injuries are not real and merely an illusion is ignorant at best and deeply cruel at worst. If I get a guest on in the future who is a follower of the Course, I'd like to discuss this and see how they deal with those critiques. But for now, you'll have to think about it yourself. Speaking of thinking, there's a little American governmental organization out there that's been obsessed with manipulating thinking for quite some time now. You might have heard of these people. They're called the CIA, and they had a little mind control project involving LSD, prostitution, torture, drugs, psychic weapons, all sorts of indecent and wild things. This program has been linked to all kinds of figures from Ted Kaczynski to Charles Manson to the Grateful Dead. It was called MK Ultra, and weirdly enough, Bill Thetford, Shuckman's Columbia University psychology department co-worker and scribe of A Course in Miracles himself, worked for the CIA and was involved in portions of MK Ultra. Now, I don't want to turn this into a conspiracy podcast. Firstly, there's so many of them out there already. And secondly, my personal opinion is that conspiracy thinking is often just as reductive as thinking that everything is exactly as the media and the government tells you. But I don't want to get into that right now because what I've been realizing is that American spirituality and conspiracy thinking, conspiracy culture, are intrinsically linked whether I like it or not. And the CIA certainly had its hand in a lot of pots back in the 60s and 70s probably still does now, but spirituality was definitely one of those pots. So I'm going to simply state the facts I can find here. 
Bill Thetford headed a project known as Subproject 130, a MK Ultra subproject focused on developing a personality theory. He was involved with this project sometime around the publishing of the course. There are also allegations, though I haven't had much luck confirming them, that the original funding for publishing came from an organization called the Foundation for the Investigation of Parasensory Phenomena. And this may have been an organization associated with the Stanford Research Institute, which received a great deal of money from the CIA to investigate psychic phenomena. At their most extreme, some have accused miracles of being a CIA front. In my opinion, that seems a bit far-fetched, but we're talking about the CIA, so who knows. One could argue that the book and its spiritual sensibilities could be used to rewire someone's brain to be more docile and vulnerable, not just to corrupt spiritual leaders, but to the United States government. But honestly, angry atheists have been making arguments like that for a long time about religion as a whole, claiming that religion merely serves to make the populace docile and easily controlled. Nonetheless, it's an interesting thought. On the other hand, those who were friends of Bill's and supporters of the course assert that Bill was unaware of what the CIA was up to, as he was never involved operationally with MKUltra and was merely being paid to study personality and ego formation. Nevertheless, in this day and age, with all we know about the CIA and its evils, Bill seems a little sus. But as Hannah Montana once said, nobody's perfect, I gotta work it again and again till I get it right. Well, anyways, folks, we're reaching the end here. It's been quite a ride. A Course in Miracles. What is it? Is it a new Gnostic manuscript for the 21st century? Is it just a bunch of New Age psychobabble, as some have called it? Is it demonic? Is it CIA MK Ultra mind control? Is it a new take on Advaita Vedanta? Is it just another mystical non-dual text in the tradition of many great mystical and non-dual texts throughout history? It's really hard to say. And again, this is a very boring book to read, but a very interesting book as a whole. And I hope you guys will take the time to get out there, check it out. Again, you can go online, acim.org, and read it yourself. So I'd highly suggest you do that, as well as maybe looking at some of the critiques of it. Anyways, my name is Isaac Hill. As always, this is Mystical America. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Amen. 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 Hallelujah, y'all. Have a good night. Love is the key.